Welcome back to the Bioinformatics and Beyond podcast, where today we're going to revisit the topic of the science of wearables, as well as implications for wearables, such as for being able to predict COVID-19 infections. We have a fantastic guest for this, since we are again joined by Dr. Tejaswini Mishra, who is a research scientist at the Stanford University School of Medicine and the co-chair of the NASA Gene Lab Animal Working Group and works on things like multiomics profiling and space biology, like we heard about previously, and precision health and wearables, which we're going to hear about now in this episode. So the focus of today's discussion will be on a recently published study in Nature Biomedical Engineering with the title of Pre-Symptomatic Detection of COVID-19 from Smartwatch Data and featured Dr. Mishra as the first author of the paper. Dr. Mishra, welcome back. And do you want to just start us off with how this paper came to be? Like kind of explain the origin story of the paper and how things got inspired and then got rolling for it? Thanks for having me again. You asked a great question. This paper actually does have a cool origin story. Mike Snyder, my postdoctoral advisor at Stanford, he was on a flight to Norway and he was wearing a wearables device and noticed that his heart rate levels and skin temperature were quite different from his usual levels. And he remembered that he'd been doing yard work in Massachusetts and he suspected he might have gotten a tick bite. And so he got off the plane, went to the doctor, got tested, and lo and behold, he actually had gotten a tick bite and would have gotten Lyme disease. And so he got medication on time. But this was sort of the start of our wearables journey in our lab. And so when you looked at the heart rate and skin temperature data for that period, we actually did see an increased heart rate during that time. And this is when he wasn't feeling any symptoms at all. So you can imagine, you know, the power of wearables to tell you ahead of time things that you can't even measure or see by yourself when you're not even feeling symptoms that, hey, you might be getting sick. And that's where all of this started. So we We've been working with wearables devices. We have our study cohort and participants who've been wearing these devices for a while. And we did a study about three years ago where we actually published the results of this Lyme disease and a few other participants that we were looking at at the time. We did see in all of these people increased heart rate when they were sick with a respiratory viral infection. And in some people, we even saw you know, high C-reactive protein levels, which are associated typically with inflammation, associated with infection, but these people didn't really have any symptoms. So that for us was an indicator that you might even have a subclinical sort of infection. Something might be going on in your body that you can't even tell, but wearables can tell you that something's going on. And so that's the origin story. And then when COVID hit, I mean, like all scientists, you're, you're left wondering, like, what can I do to help? And I, I felt the same way that there is something we can do to impact, make a positive impact. And we, Mike and I talked and we bounced together a few ideas and came up with the idea of using wearables to then try to detect COVID-19 early at a pre-symptomatic stage ahead of time. And the idea was we're going to try to detect this and then hopefully at some point in the future, send alerts to people on their phones, for example, through a push notification and alert people to self-isolate. Because at the time, as you might remember, there were not even enough COVID-19 tests. It was a huge burden on the healthcare system. So the idea was, we're going to just tell people to stay at home and you know not try to then go out and like burden the healthcare system as well and to not spread the disease, of course. Yeah, it definitely seems like this is like the future of 
infectious disease prediction and, and control, or at least one huge aspect of it. Anyway, so now getting in, drilling down into the study. So for instance, how many people did you enroll in the study? How many people ended up getting sick? And like, what types of wearables did you use and, and things like that of the nuts and bolts of the study? Absolutely. We, you know, we launched in March, right before a couple of weeks before the lockdowns. We ended up in four months by the end of June, enrolling around 6,000 people. We just, we basically have our own sort of study website. And luckily before we started, since we were already working with wearables, we have our software team that had been developing a mobile app called My PhD or My Personal Health Dashboard. And so we were really lucky to have that at the start of the pandemic. We enrolled these 5,000 people. We would ask them to then fill out symptom logs every day and tell us if they had a COVID test and if they developed COVID. And obviously they had to have wearables devices. We, we couldn't provide them, but if you owned your own wearable device, you were eligible for the study. And our My PhD app was what we used to pull their wearables data from their device once they give us permissions. And we would then run that wearables data kind of in the background and run our algorithms on it. We also asked these people to share their medical records you know, for COVID tests or other information. So once we enrolled these 6,000 people in, you know, in the space of four months, about the large majority of them, about 4,000, 600, 5,000 of them had wearables devices. There were a bunch of people who didn't have wearables and signed up for the study. But the large majority of them had Fitbits. So about 3,300, I would say, had Fitbits. About 900 or 1,000 people had Apple Watches. We had about 400 Garmin users. And then some other people scattered across other devices. So Aura Rings and the Whoop Strap and I forget which other devices. But yeah, we had a few more devices as well. Empatica watches and stuff like that. And then how many people in this cohort ended up getting sick? That's a great question. You enroll 6,000 people. And of course, it's the start of the pandemic. So you expect that people will be getting sick. But we ended up having about 114 people from this 6,000 strong cohort reporting positive COVID diagnosis. And then out of those, we had 32 people in the end that we were able to study or use their data. And these were 32 people who were wearing their watch when they got sick and had enough pre-sickness data that we could train our models on. And there wasn't you know, too much missing data from these people. So these were that was 32 people. And all of these 32 people actually wore Fitbits. So this work is basically done using Fitbit data, but our algorithms are device agnostic. They work on pretty much data from any device. We also had 47 people who reported other illnesses or other infections. And uh, we have basically in the paper, we looked at wearables data from out of the people who were wearing devices for 15 other illness events, including influenza A, influenza B, rhinovirus, and all sorts of other illnesses as well. And some a small cohort of people who didn't report any infections, so potentially healthy people to kind of compare with the COVID and the other illnesses. Okay, so once you've collected all this data that you mentioned, how exactly do you go about analyzing all the data that you get from all these different devices? And then you have some of the people that are that are sick. And can you just describe some of the high-level processes and, and maybe even some of the like nuances of doing the actual data analysis and maybe also like the main variables that you investigated that turned out to be the ones that you were going to use to, for instance, show that somebody has COVID-19? Absolutely. Yeah. Once we, so once our mobile app pulls the data, 
this is all, uh, this part is done in the cloud. We pre-process the data. So we kind of remove spikes. We smoothen the data out a little bit because wearables data, when it comes out right out of the watch, the raw data can be really noisy. And so we do some pre-processing steps and then we just feed it straight into our algorithms. And for this study, we looked at, we developed two algorithms, both of them focusing on heart rate. One of them is called RHR-DIFF or resting heart rate difference. And what it does is it looks at a basically a resting, standardized resting heart rate and the residuals of those resting heart rate. And it looks at your 28-day baseline or your average daily curve. And remember, we're getting this data every few seconds. So there's a ton of data that we are getting. Basically, you're getting a heart rate measurement of beats, you know, 60 beats per minute or 70 beats per minute every few seconds. And so we're combining all of this data during the pre-processing step and creating, you know, one minute windows or one hour windows based on the resolution required by the algorithms. And then comparing, taking the resting heart rate baseline for each individual, and then at each time point, comparing the heart rate to the baseline to see if there are any periods where there is a significant elevation compared to the baseline. And so that's the RHR-DIFF method. And what that does is it reports periods of significant elevation of heart rate. And then we also have the HROS-AD, which is heart rate over steps anomaly detector. And what that's doing is basically we created, computed a new metric called heart rate over steps. And we're fitting a univariate Gaussian model and then trying to detect anomalies essentially from the Gaussian kernel or like deviations from this kernel, essentially looking at observations that are significantly different from the majority of the distribution. And why are we using heart rate over steps? Because you can imagine people have heart rate elevations when they're exercising. But what you really want to catch is heart rate elevations when you're not even exercising. And so that's why we do the heart rate over steps, which then controls for the amount of physical activity. And then this algorithm basically reports increased heart rate over steps at hourly intervals. So every hour you have, you know, a report of like, yes or no, this is significantly increased or not. And that's what, so we combine, we look at the results from both of these algorithms. Yeah, maybe I'll just try to recap these two and see if I if I got it all or not. I, I have a Fitbit that I've been wearing for a little while. It's been kind of fun to play with. And it gives me a resting heart rate, I think, once a day. I'm pretty sure it reports. And I think it's like when I'm sleeping, it gets to like the lowest or something. And then like that day, it'll it'll tell it back to me. It'll be like 58 or 60 or something like that. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the RHR diff, this is basically taking that daily resting heart rate and seeing if that goes up or down versus if your current heart rate throughout the day elevates past that, or if that just in total just goes up or down? We're not just using the resting heart rate at night. We are actually looking at resting heart rate during the day as well. When, for example, the step count is zero, when there is no activity, that can also be counted as a resting heart rate. So yeah, so we build our baselines looking at periods where the heart rate is measured when there is no physical activity. And that's what we use to build the resting heart rate baseline. That can be, you know, during the day or at night. And there's a reason we do this is because very often people don't wear their watches when they're sleeping at night. I mean, most people, people often take it off and just put it to charge at night because it's just not comfortable. And so, yeah, so that's why we take resting heart rate during the day as well. These devices measure so many things. I mean, the Fitbits, Apple Watches, all of these devices will measure your heart rate. You also get like physical activity, so step counts, you get sleep. 
And you also can get, depending on the device, SpO2, which is blood oxygen saturation. You can also get respiratory rate. You can get heart rate variability. And so all of these are different things that the devices measure. You can get skin conductance, which is kind of an interesting marker of stress. And when you go about deciding on which variables you're going to look at to predict, let's say, COVID-19, do you check all the different variables to see if there's an association? Or did you kind of know going in, you wanted to stick with the these kind of heart rate type metrics? Well, we knew that heart rate would be extremely informative. It was also the one that we could reliably get from all of the watches. Pretty much all of these devices measure heart rate. That's something you can get from everything. Some of these devices, like the Aura Rings, measure blood oxygen saturation, which I think is actually really useful for COVID, but is not measured as often as it should be. Temperature actually is not a very useful measure for COVID. We've had, you know, early in the pandemic, there were reports about people, you know, not running a fever, have no temperature uh, rise at all, but they were positive for COVID. And so temperature is kind of unreliable, whereas blood oxygen saturation actually can be a much more reliable measure, but we were just not getting it from all of the devices. And sometimes people have older versions of a watch that maybe the newer version has this particular metric, but the older one doesn't. And so heart rate was the one that was reliably measured across all devices. And all of them also do step counts. And so that's another easy one to take into consideration. What we would really like to do is to be able to also incorporate, you know, respiratory rate, blood oxygen, saturation, heart rate variability. Those are metrics that are incredibly informative about people's health. All right. So what then were the main findings of your study? Fair to say that you were able to show that the wearables were able to predict COVID in some or all of the cases and and how well did it work? Yes. Yes. It is fair to say. We So we had these 32 people that I told you about that were reliably wearing their devices when they got the COVID-19 infection and even before infection. So out of those 32, we were able to reliably detect COVID in 26 of those 32 people. So about 80% or 81% of the people. The remaining six people, it's kind of interesting. The ones we didn't catch, we it's not that we didn't see an elevated heart rate. We did see elevated heart rate in these people as well, but it was just not robust. I mean, it was not associated. There were times during the COVID infection or prior to the COVID infection that we would see an elevated heart rate in these people. But we also saw it two months before the COVID infection. So it's there was no clear association with the COVID-19 infection. And so we we categorized those as you know not reliably detected. But these 26 people, we used each person's heart rate as their own individual baseline. And we were measuring deviations or elevation in heart rate from their baseline. And for each of these people, we were able to see a significant elevation in the heart rate. Good news is that both of the algorithms agreed um, so I think for 22 out of those 25 people were detected by both algorithms. And then the really cool thing that I think is hopefully going to be a game changer in terms of how we think about wearables for monitoring disease is that we were able to detect for 21 out of 25 cases for which we had symptom onset data or 22 out of 25, we were able to detect this before or at symptom onset. So we were collecting these symptom onset dates from people in our daily survey logs. And we were able to see in the large majority of cases, we were able to catch it before symptom onset or at symptom onset. And this is really important because 
with COVID, about 50 to 60 percent of the transmission happens in the pre-symptomatic stage when people don't even know that they're sick. And so being able to catch it early and being able to monitor it early can be really, really important for alerting then people to self-isolate and helping to stop the spread of the pandemic. So that's awesome. And I think at this point, it's worth me just doing a quick shout out to say that I, I did have a previous episode for the podcast on this before. This was with Dr. Zahi Fayad and Dr. Robert Hurton from Mount Sinai. They did a, a similar wearables COVID-19 study. And from what I remember, they mostly focused on the variable of heart rate variability for detecting. Would you be able to compare and contrast at all this work against like that work from Mount Sinai that I had previously? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as, as you said, the Mount Sinai guys used heart rate variability. And what that is, is, you know, for example, when your watch is telling you that your heart rate is 60 beats per minute, it's not that your heart is beating exactly once every second, right? It basically, sometimes it can beat with like an interval of 1.1 seconds. Maybe sometimes the interval is 0.7 seconds. And so that's what's known as heart rate variability, that, that difference in the interbeat interval. And a high heart rate variability is considered generally to be good. It means your body is resilient and able to respond to the different stimulus, basically, when it needs to relax and kind of slow your heartbeat down versus you're in a fight or flight mode and you need to increase your heartbeat. And so that's what heart rate variability is. And what we measured was increase in just heart rate associated with infection. The big difference between, I think both of us, essentially, the big message was that you can detect COVID-19 early at a pre-symptomatic stage using wearables devices and continuous and longitudinal monitoring is the way to go for the future for precision health, for you know, monitoring pandemics, but also has general utility for health applications and predicting health and tracking disease. The big difference between the two studies, I think, is the two metrics that were used. And I explained a little bit the difference between heart rate and heart rate variability. But also another issue is that Heart rate is measured very, very frequently by these devices. As I said, we get one measurement every few seconds. And so we have a ton of data. It's very dense data. And you can do a ton of really good statistical modeling. You can try to fit deep learning models to understand patterns in the data. Whereas with the heart rate variability, the data is collected very sporadically. So it's very sparse data. And so you don't really have a whole lot of data to look at. And I think in that study, they did fit individual models to like try to predict individual deviations for each person, but it can be really hard to do when you have very sparse data. So for us, the big power is the power of large amounts of data and being able to get a really good handle on what each person's individual baseline is. And that's hard to do when the data collection is so much more sporadic. And But hopefully that'll improve with improvements in technology and from the device makers. Yeah, I will definitely be interested to see how this progresses from here. I find this to be such a fascinating topic, for, especially from how having done both of these episodes. And maybe I have a couple other questions that are probably going to overlap heavily with, with the, the previous episode. So for instance, I had asked before the ability to distinguish different types of illnesses. Any thoughts on that? Like when you use these particular variables around the heart rate, for instance, if somebody has like the flu versus COVID, how well are we going to be able to tune this for like different diseases or will a lot of them have kind of the same signature, do you think? 
yeah, all of these diseases result in, in, in an elevation in heart rate. That's sort of the basic thing. One thing we saw in our study and that I didn't mention before when I was talking about the results is that we see different, you might ask, you know, how much you're seeing, you're seeing an elevation of heart rate, but how much elevation of heart rate do you see in each of these people? Someone might have, you know, on average, 10 beats per minute elevation in from compared to their resting heart rate. Someone else, their heart rate might be elevated by five beats per minute. And so for all of the COVID-19 cases, on average, we saw an elevation of about seven beats per minute. Whereas for the other illnesses, which, as I said, includes flu, rhinovirus, everything, we saw an elevation of about four beats per minute on average, uh, if you compare all of the cases. And so, yeah, so the heart rate elevations were different. We also are able to detect COVID-19 about median four days ahead of symptoms. And with the other illnesses, we're able to detect them about two days ahead of symptoms. And so that could indicate a difference in kind of how severe they are or kind of the underlying biology of these infections. But in general, I think I would think it's more useful to think of wearables as a more general tool for detecting heart rate elevation or infection that you can then take this increased heart rate and think about what to do next with it. Go see a doctor or self-isolate rather than thinking that if my heart rate is elevated, it must mean that I have COVID. So, so I, don't, I don't think, I think in the future, maybe with more data, we might be able to distinguish between signatures of different infections. But right now, I think we have very limited ability to distinguish between them. I, I like to think of these wearables devices as sort of like taking your temperature. It's kind of like a thermometer. If your temperature is high, you have a fever you know something is wrong, but you don't know exactly why you have a fever. It could be you know, any number of different reasons. And it's the same with these heart rate measurements as well. You know that your heart rate is up. And I haven't talked about this, but it could be up for so many different reasons, not just because you're sick, but because you're on your menstrual cycle or you're traveling or you exercised or you were drinking alcohol, you're stressed out, you're at a different altitude, you're traveling on an airplane. These are all sorts of reasons that your heart rate might be elevated. And so you know, in the future, we need to do a lot more studies with increased sample size, check for sensitivity and specificity. There's a lot more to do in the future. And one thing I didn't talk about was the part of our paper where we developed an online real-time algorithm, a real-time detection system. So we've now basically implemented this real-time alerting system where we can send participants a two-tier alert, a yellow alarm or a red alarm. Yellow means your heart rate is sort of going up and red means your heart rate has been up for a while and we really think you should self-isolate or talk to a doctor. And so we've been sending these alerts to people and letting them know and then asking for feedback. Were you exercising? Were you traveling? Are you on your menstrual cycle? And we're hoping to use then this labeled data to improve our algorithms, to get this feedback, improve our algorithms, iterate and send, send out alerts again. And then also look at not just COVID-19, but all sorts of different illnesses as well. Yeah, that's awesome. So final question to wrap up, which I think I had also asked on the, on the last episode, your thoughts on the future of wearables for infectious disease. You kind of already said it, about trying to differentiate the different diseases and collecting more data. But any final thoughts of what you see the future playing out for the role of wearables in the infectious disease and even also just like in human health as a whole in general, since this is an area you you work pretty deeply in? 
Yeah, I, I, I think wearables are going to be useful for a lot more than infectious disease. With infectious disease, though, like if you're looking at future pandemics or epidemics, I can imagine, you know, individual patients or, you know, wearables users interacting with device companies or their healthcare providers to sort of manage and monitor individual patient health. I could imagine employers using it in a setting where if you maybe you have employer directed like workforce, like employee testing for COVID-19 to augment that kind of testing, maybe you could use wearables. Because you might do that kind of testing once in a week, but then you could use wearables to warn you ahead of time if someone is getting sick when they're most infectious. And then you could also use it in a community sort of public health surveillance setting where public health officials could use wearables devices to monitor and catch outbreaks before they occur or like clusters of hotspots of infections. And then beyond infectious disease, I think it's the Jetsons future, basically. You can, you can basically imagine pretty much anything. It's the Wild West. We are doing a ton of research, we and others. There's a ton of groups doing research, but there's really no clear you know, paradigm, no clear standards right now that have been set for wearables research. There are tons of applications in, for instance, using wearables to monitor cardiovascular disease. People have used that to look at um, atrial fibrillation, People have used wearables to look at sleep. There is just diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all sorts of chronic illnesses, I think, can be monitored using wearables devices. And the future is out there, basically. Speaking of the future, final quick question to wrap up with. I remember talking to you about this previously. It's been a little while about how the work was still ongoing of the COVID-19 monitoring with the wearables. Is that still ongoing? So we're recording right now in about the middle-ish of 2021. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be kind of light at the end of the tunnel, let's say, on the COVID-19 situation. Are you still... Have you still been doing that for a long time? And are you still doing it? And are things getting better? And and have you updated algorithms and things like that? We are. Yeah, we are still... We launched uh, the phase two of our study with the real-time alerting that I was talking about. And we have a whole bunch of people that have been giving us feedback on the algorithms you know, this is what's going on, menstrual cycle or travel or food or alcohol. Our algorithms are right now in the high 70s, early 80s in terms of sensitivity and specificity, which is pretty good, I would say. You don't want to, you know, send false alarms to people and upset them unnecessarily every, you know, twice in a month or (laughs) once in a month. And so, yeah, so that's where we're we're at. We also got a bunch of people who actually took the COVID-19 vaccines. And so we even have some data on what changes in your body and in your heart rate specifically when you've taken a vaccination. And so we should have a whole bunch of data and analysis coming out. So keep your eyes peeled, I guess. Uh, and and we're, we're actually continuing the study and continuing to enroll people. What we really want to do is track people with any sort of illness, not just COVID-19. And hopefully that'll help us even identify future outbreaks before they occur. Okay, I will try to stay tuned. And if anyone else out there also wanted to stay tuned, how would they do that? We are at innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. And so you can follow the study progress at that website. And I tweet about my work and specifically my work on wearables at my Twitter account, uh, at Tejaswini. And so you can follow me there for more updates on my research as well. All right, well, that's going to wrap up this episode. That's all the time we have with Dr. Mishra. But I just want to say again, thank you so much for for doing this. It's been really interesting and enlightening learning about all the 
work you've been doing. It sounds like all pretty incredible work. So keep up the good work also. And thanks. Thank you. It was great to be here and great talking with you, Leo. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I hope you found it interesting. If you did, if you learned something new and you enjoyed the show, I'd love to hear about it on Twitter. You can join the conversation and keep up with the newest episodes and past guests by following at BioInfoPod. Feel free to tweet at the show or send a DM about anything you liked, didn't like, who or what you'd like to see next, questions for future guests, or just chat about all things bioinformatics and, of course, beyond. It really does make my day to see people share on Twitter when they found the podcast useful. So definitely keep it coming. And again, that's at BioInfoPod. Finally, you can always help out by subscribing to the show, giving it a rating, or just recommending it to a friend who's interested in these topics. Thanks again, and see you next time.